If you got a Bible with you this morning, I do want to invite you to open it to John chapter 3. Uh, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of John. And while you're locating John chapter 3, let me just say that the Bible is a book that is filled with surprises. Uh, when you read it for the first time, you find some things that are very surprising, maybe even shocking at times. Uh, even if we were just to limit ourselves to the four Gospels, we would find lots of surprising things. Things that Jesus does, things that Jesus says. Uh, sometimes it, it was just... The people were surprised at the kind of people that Jesus hung out with and associated with, that he hung out with tax collectors and sinners and welcome prostitutes. That sort of stuff was shocking in the day. Many of the things that Jesus said were shocking. He told stories where Samaritans, outsiders, were the heroes or uh, widows. Poor widows were the heroes of some of his stories. Or he said things like, the first will be last and the last will be first. Or that the way to find your life is to lose it. There's lots of surprises when we read the Gospels. But maybe one of the biggest surprises we discover as we read through the Gospels is what Jesus says about those who will and those who won't enter the kingdom of heaven. So when Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount... He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus says plainly that there will be those who named him as Lord, even those who did many mighty works in his name, who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Or we could think about what Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe in him. Now Jesus was speaking to a group of men who devoted their lives to religious study and religious activity, and he tells them there's more hope for the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes than there is for you. Or in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells a series of parables about the surprises that people will experience on Judgment Day. And those parables culminate in the parable of the sheep and the goats. And that parable teaches that there will be many who thought they were shoe-ins for the kingdom of God, who will be in for a great surprise on that day. Now, if we were looking for a story that illustrates what that looks like. We couldn't do any better than the story we are looking at today in John chapter 3. It's the story of a man named Nicodemus, and we're going to read through verses 1 to 15 of that passage. This is God's word, and this is what it says. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Well, we're going to work our way through this passage under the umbrella of two main truths. And the first one is that we can't buy, earn, status, respect, or sneak our way into the kingdom of God. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful, I know. I'm sort of cramming five points into one, so consider it an early Christmas present. But these opening verses tell us five things about Nicodemus. The first thing we ought to know about Nicodemus is that he was a wealthy man, or at least a man of some means. Now, it doesn't actually say that in verse 1, but we know this about Nicodemus because Nicodemus makes a couple of other appearances in the Gospel of John. Now, it does seem like Nicodemus maybe has some sort of conversion experience somewhere along the way because after Jesus had been crucified, it was Nicodemus who provided what was necessary to give Jesus a proper burial. So in John chapter 19, we read Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Now, oils and spices were expensive in the first century, and 75 pounds of them would have cost a hefty sum. Nicodemus was a man of some means and wealth. And the thinking in the ancient world, actually it's not that different than the thinking today, was that if you possessed wealth, God's favor rested upon you. Not just sort of in a general way, but the wealth was sort of God's stamp of approval on your life. And everything in this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus was shocking or surprising because Nicodemus was the one who had the pedigree, he had the right credentials, and he had great wealth. And yet he comes to Jesus as the one who is in need of something. Nicodemus was not the first to discover that having it all still leaves you wanting something. You can't buy your way into the kingdom of God. Second thing we learn about Nicodemus was that he was a Pharisee. He's described here as a man of the Pharisees. Now, if you've been around the church for any length of time, then you've been conditioned to hear that word in a negative light. But you need to understand that's not how the Pharisees were viewed or seen in the first century. The Pharisees were sort of the champions of orthodoxy, right doctrine, and orthopraxy, right conduct or right behavior, right living. The name Pharisee means separated one, and you became a Pharisee 
by taking a pledge in front of witnesses that you would spend all of your days observing every detail in the scribal law. So what did this look like? Now, we know God did prescribe laws for his people. As one example, he prescribed a law about the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Now, that was God's law. But by the time you get to the first century, there were all these layers that had been added to that law about the Sabbath. All these extra laws you needed to keep if you were to obey the Sabbath. So you had something called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was the written collection of all the oral traditions about the Old Testament law. But the Sabbath, in the Mishnah, the section on the Sabbath was 24 pages long. Those were the, the laws that you had to keep in order to keep Sabbath. Then there was another document known as the Talmud, which was an explanatory commentary on the Mishnah. The Babylonian Talmud section on the Sabbath is 156 double pages. And the Talmud went into details about things like what kind of knots you could and could not tie on the Sabbath day. Now, the Pharisees, they were experts in all of this. They sought to keep all of these laws. In their minds, this is what made you righteous before God. But as Nicodemus was about to discover, you can't earn your way into the kingdom of God. Now, Martin Luther was known as the father of the Reformation. Before coming into a right relationship with God, Martin Luther was actually a monk. And here's what he wrote. He said, I was a good monk and kept my order so strictly that I could claim if ever a monk were able to reach heaven by monkish discipline, I should have found my way there. All my fellows in the house who knew me would bear me out in this, for if it had continued much longer, I would, what with vigils, prayers, readings, and other such works, have done myself to death. See, that's the nature of dead-end or treadmill religion. You just keep doing and doing, hoping that it will be enough for you to earn your way into the kingdom of God. And that was the kind of religion Nicodemus practiced. Something else we learn about Nicodemus in verse 1 is that he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So what did that mean? Well, that meant that Nicodemus was part of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin consisted of 70 men who ruled over all Israel. It was the highest national institution in charge of Jewish affairs. Now, Israel was under Roman rule at this point, but the Sanhedrin was given Rome's authority to exercise over the Jewish people. So if we were thinking about the American model, the Sanhedrin was basically like Congress and the Supreme Court rolled into one. They had lots of power, lots of authority. Nicodemus was part of that select group. And he may have even been an elder statesman in the group. So when Jesus is challenging his thinking in verse 10, he says, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. So just just think of your favorite Bible teacher, right? John Piper or Tim Keller or Lee Francois, right? This is the kind of status he had. That's how people would have thought of him, this great respected individual. But when he comes to Jesus, the very first words he hears 
or truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this is what I mean by saying that we cannot buy, earn, or status our way into the kingdom of God. And we can't respect our way in either. Now, Nicodemus seemed to approach Jesus with a great deal of respect. He actually makes four affirmations about Jesus in these verses. Firstly, he addresses him as rabbi. Now, that word means teacher, but it was, more, it was a more honorific title than that. It was a bit like saying, your honor. And on top of that, Jesus had no formal rabbinical training. So to be addressed by someone like this, who had Nicodemus's clout and position communicated, Nicodemus's respect for Jesus. I respect you as a teacher. Nicodemus even seemed to recognize that Jesus' teaching had all the earmarks of God's authority. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher sent from God. And when it says we, we don't know if Nicodemus came with a delegation of his own disciples or if he was speaking on behalf of the Sanhedrin or if he was just sort of using the royal we. But whatever the case, he had heard enough about Jesus' teaching and his ministry to know that he was not sort of your run-of-the-mill rabbi. There was something special about him. And lots of people recognize this quality in Jesus, specifically in regard to his teaching. So when Jesus finishes his Sermon on the Mount, the concluding observation is, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes, right? So everyone looked at Jesus and they said, there's something special about him. Nicodemus looked at him and said, you are a teacher, a great teacher sent by God. So he didn't just see Jesus as a teacher. He acknowledges he must be sent from God. And Nicodemus stands in contrast to many, maybe most, of the other Pharisees in thinking this way. So after Jesus healed a man who had been blind from birth, here's the reaction of the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And Nicodemus thought Jesus was sent from God. Nicodemus also affirmed the signs that Jesus was doing. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Now, we've already talked about signs a little bit in this series. A sign is merely a pointer or an indicator. The signs that Jesus did didn't automatically produce genuine faith. And sometimes two people can look at the same sign and reach completely different conclusions. And that seems to be a point of departure between Nicodemus and the other religious leaders. They saw the signs that Jesus did, the very same things Nicodemus saw, but they did not think he came from God. As one writer put it, a sign is not the same thing as a proof. A sign is merely a marker for someone who is looking in the right direction. This is why the Pharisees could not accept the signs that Jesus did. They were not looking in the right direction. So they had to reach some other conclusion. After one of Jesus' healings, we read this. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, or by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. 
So look, if we were grading on a scale and we were to compare Nicodemus and the other Pharisees, we would say, you know what? Nicodemus is doing pretty well. I mean, he's got this great respect for Jesus. And I would just say that lots of people have lots of respect for Jesus. Lots of people would affirm Jesus is a great role model. Maybe even Jesus is a prophet or a teacher. But Jesus said that is not enough. Nicodemus did that. C.S. Lewis captured the folly of thinking we can sort of respect our way into the kingdom of God. When he said this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, that's what Nicodemus is confronted with when he comes to Jesus. He comes with great respect. And what Jesus says to him is, you must be born again. So we can't buy, earn, status, or respect our way into the kingdom of God. I also said we can't sneak our way in. So what do I mean by that? Well, the beginning of verse 2 says this. So verse 1 says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Why does John tell us that? Why does he tell us that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night? Well, it could be be just because he actually came at nighttime and this is sort of a historical time stamp telling us what part of the day it was. It could be that he came at night because the evening was the time that rabbis usually spent sort of studying the law. But I think there might be more to it than that. You know, when we come to John chapter 4, the next chapter in John's gospel, we'll come to the story of the Samaritan woman, the woman who comes to draw water from Jacob's Well, and it will tell us there that it was the sixth hour when she came to draw the water. The sixth hour was 12 o'clock noon. And it's significant that John tells us that she came at that time because women usually came to the hours or to the well in the early hours of the morning and they came in groups. This woman comes at high noon, the hottest part of the day, and she comes alone. It's telling us something significant. And there might be something like that going on here in John chapter 3 as well. When John tells us that Nicodemus came at night. One of the themes in the Gospel of John is this contrast between light and darkness. We've seen that already. Jesus is the light of the world. But that contrast between light and darkness is also seen in the contrast between night and day. So I want you to listen to the three other references to night in the Gospel of John. 
In John 9, after Jesus heals the, the man who had been blind from birth on the Sabbath, the religious leaders are upset about the fact that he did it on the Sabbath. And Jesus says this, We must work, do the work or work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work. Or in John 11, Jesus' disciples are concerned for Jesus' safety. They wonder if Jesus should be operating in a more secretive manner. And in response, Jesus says, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And then there's an interesting detail included in John's account of Judas's departure from the rest of the disciples when he went to betray Jesus. John records it like this. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Now, this is not, not the sort, this is not a sort of, you know, nothing good happens after midnight sermon, right? That's not my point. Your parents can deliver that one if you're a teenager. But I think the inference here is that Nicodemus comes at night because he's not quite ready to come into the light. The cover of darkness allows him to come to Jesus without anyone else knowing what he's doing. And lots of people come to Jesus. Like that, at least initially. Some time ago, I read Andre Agassi's autobiography. Now, he was at one time the top-ranked men's tennis player in the world. But even in the midst of his success, he went through some pretty dark times. In the midst of one of those seasons, he began attending a small church. And he said he would just sort of slip in late, sit in the back, and then slip out before anyone else would notice. But as he sat there, he had these questions. And so he eventually contacted the pastor and he, you know, he said, yeah, you know, you don't know me, but I'm the guy who's been sneaking into the back of the church. And the pastor was like, yeah, I know who you are. I mean, right. He had that long flowing hair. He was kind of famous for it. Or, or you could talk to my wife about it. And Ilona would tell you that when she first started exploring the Christian faith, she did exactly the same thing. She went to Willingdon Church in part because it was so large and it sort of guaranteed anonymity. She would kind of slip in, hoping not to be noticed, and then slip out, hoping not to be noticed. Lots of people begin to explore the Christian faith by sort of dipping their toes in the water when no one is watching. They come to Jesus at night, in a sense. Now, we can begin like that, but Jesus always calls us into the light. He calls us to a public declaration of our faith through baptism, meaningful church membership. And what's interesting as you look at the example of Nicodemus is that he goes away from this interaction. And when he goes away, we're not actually sure. Was he converted? Did he have this moment with Jesus? It doesn't read like that. It doesn't look like he was quite ready to come into the light, so to speak. But there are indications that he was in process of becoming and declaring himself to be a follower of Jesus. So in John chapter 7, there's this debate that's taking place amongst the religious leaders, amongst the Sanhedrin, really, about what to do with Jesus. And here's part of their discussion, but this crowd that does not know the law, is accursed. Now, Nicodemus, 
who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And then I already mentioned what happens in John 19, that Nicodemus is the one who provides the oil and the spices for Jesus' burial. This was sort of a coming out of the shadows into the light. There's a public part of that. So Nicodemus, a wealthy, pious, respected, respectful individual comes to Jesus at night with some kind of question. And before he gets his question out, Jesus says to him, you must be born again. This is why I said you can't buy earned status, respect, or sneak your way into the kingdom of God. That's the bad news. But that's only half the story. The second half of the story is that you can only get into the kingdom of God by the work of God's spirit and the sacrifice of God's son. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or as Jesus says later, you must be born again. And what you need to know about that you is that it's plural. So if we were still using the old English, we would say, truly, truly, I say to ye. Unless one is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. Or if we were in the south, we might say, y'all need to be born again. No one is seeing the kingdom of God without being born again. Actually, like that one, I think we should adopt that as a translation. Truly, truly, I say to y'all, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And I don't want anyone to miss this. None of you, none of y'all will see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. It won't be enough to say, look, I, I tried really hard. Or I went to church faithfully. Or I served as a Sunday school teacher. Or I gave money. Or I really respected Jesus. You, me, and everyone else will not see the kingdom of God if we are not born again. Now, I know that word born again has sort of fallen out of favor in in our day, right? Oh, you're one of those born again types. And in some places, it's got all sorts of political connotations attached to it. I understand why people are uneasy with the label or the descriptor. But it is such a good descriptor of what happens in the Christian life. It's the kind of language we find all over the New Testament to describe Christians. So Peter says it this way, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Or as he he goes on to say later in that chapter, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, those who will see the kingdom of God are those who have experienced a new birth, who have been born again. 
But the issue Nicodemus has with what Jesus says about being born again is different than being worried about the label. Listen to verse 4. I mean, Jesus says this to him. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, we should not think that Nicodemus was an idiot or some sort of strict literalist. He didn't think Jesus was telling him he had to climb back into his mother's womb. His problem was he could not imagine having to start all over again. I mean, what about all his acts of righteousness? What about his position? Did none of that count for anything? And the answer is no, it didn't. So sometime later, the one that we refer to as the Apostle Paul would offer this as part of his testimony. Listen to what he says, because he too was a Pharisee. He said, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Paul says that all of those things that he once thought made him right or righteous before God, he counts as nothing and less than nothing. In fact, dung is the word that he uses. Paul had to be born again. Jesus gives us a little bit more explanation of of what it means to be born again in verses 5 to 8. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is the flesh, or is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from. Or where it goes, so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. To be born again is to experience the supernatural work of God's Spirit. It's something He does in us. Now, when Jesus says you have to be born of water and the Spirit, there's been lots of different interpretations of what that might mean. Some have taken that description, born of water and the Spirit, as a reference to baptism. There's an entire theology, in fact, connected to that in some traditions known as baptismal regeneration. The idea is that when the baptismal waters are applied to a child, for instance, their original sin is washed away. Now, look, that's not how baptism works. But also, Jesus was not even talking about baptism here. He certainly wasn't talking to Nicodemus about baptismal regeneration in some sort of sacramental system of salvation that hadn't even been instituted yet. His point to Nicodemus is not, you've got to go through this hoop first, but you need to stop thinking you can just jump through enough hoops to make it into the kingdom of God. That's not how you get in. You get in by a work of the Spirit in your life. 
So others have suggested that the water and spirit refers to natural birth and spiritual birth. Water because of the amniotic fluid that surrounds a baby in the womb and spirit because of the new birth. I, I don't think Nicodemus would have made that connection. And it also would be a bit redundant, I, right? The first thing you need to do is be born. Uh, oh, okay, check. I, I think it's actually much simpler than that. It's not born of water and born of the spirit, but born of water and spirit. And the imagery here comes from the Old Testament. It has to do with newness. Both of those things signify newness. So listen to this promise from the prophet Ezekiel. It's God's promise. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, the good news of the gospel is that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus, Jesus does not say to him, hey, look, do better, try harder. What he says is you need to be born again. You need the spirit to do a work in your life. You need God's spirit to breathe life into you. Now, Nicodemus is still a bit confused. Here's what we read in verses 9 to 15. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Right, really? I got to start all over again? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus actually gives a fascinating answer, right? How can these things be? And Jesus makes this contrast between the earthly approach to salvation and the heavenly approach to salvation. Now, the earthly approach to salvation is that do better, try harder gospel. The heavenly solution is one we've already been introduced to this morning. As we've already mentioned, this is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is a time that we set aside to celebrate with anticipation the coming of the Messiah. And with just a few words, Jesus summarizes both his incarnation and his sacrificial death. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. Right? Jesus is the one who has descended from heaven. That's his incarnation. That the eternal God stepped into time and became one of us. And then the bit about Moses and the serpent speaks to his sacrificial death on the cross. Again, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So it wasn't just enough for Jesus to come and sort of model for us the way to live. Jesus is pointing forward to his sacrificial death on our behalf. The reference to Moses lifting up the serpent 
comes from an event that's recorded for us in Numbers chapter 21 in the Old Testament. As part of God's discipline against a group of rebellious Israelites, he sent something like a plague of serpents among them. And when the people came to realize their sinfulness, their rebellion against God, it says this, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Right, you've seen a symbol like that. I mean, our medical symbol is, is connected to that. But this is what the people had to do. Salvation for the rebellious Israelites came from looking at the serpent that Moses set up high on a pole. And what Jesus is telling us here is that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And this is what happens in his crucifixion. He's pointing forward to his death on the cross. Our means of salvation then is not do better, try harder, but look to Jesus on the cross. Accept his substitutionary death on our behalf. And notice the good news of verse 15. How do we get into the kingdom of God? Here's what verse 15 says. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life, right? That ought to be shocking news, right? This is the way into the kingdom of God. It is to believe in the son that God sent into the world for us. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what we're celebrating as we celebrate Advent. So let's pray together. Father, we do want to thank you for your grace that's been shed upon us. We thank you for the gift of Jesus, that he not only shows us how to live, but he has redeemed our lives by his death on the cross. And so God, as we reflect on that, even now as we move into a time of communion together, we pray our hearts would be filled with the wonder of what you have done for us. Those things that we could not do for ourselves, the fact that we would have no standing before you because of our wealth or because of our status, you have granted it all to us because of our belief in you, our faith in you that everyone who believes in you may have eternal life. And so, God, we celebrate that this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.